Thank you, Paul and Leslie, and good to see all the rest of you here as well. Good to be here, Larry. <laughs> Very good. Yes. And it is first time in about 23 years that I can literally say good morning. Yes. <laughs> we may have said it inadvertently before, but, but here we are. <laughs> good morning. Well, let's take our Bibles this afternoon and turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we continue on with Jesus' personal seminars, if you will, with His disciples. Um, he's, he's really moved from the climax of the crowds, and again, there will be crowds to follow, but literally, the ministry has changed from direct mentorship, if you will, from the Savior, uh, Christos, the Christ, the Son of God, to His disciples. Uh, we'll pick up the reading today in Mark chapter 9, we'll start in verse 42. Now, I would... I would, I'm not going to caution you, but these are Jesus' words. They're intense. They're very severe. I mean, this is, this is really pretty heavy stuff. Uh, we'll be talking as we go on, but uh, just here we go. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed, into having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter, enter into life than to have two feet cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another." May God add a special blessing to reading of His Word. And let's just pause for a prayer before we continue in our study. Father God, thank You for the opportunity we have today to be gathered here, to worship Your name, to lift it up on high, to glorify You, Father. For, Father, when we do that, we are closer to You. Father, relationally now, as we go to the Word, we would ask that You would pull us to You, closer than we have ever been. We would ask that the Holy Spirit would exclusively be our teacher today. We look to the Word with anticipation, knowing that You will change us, you will take the Word, and the Spirit will apply it exactly where it is needed. We pray that the words that would be said today would be meaningful, powerful, and beneficial. If anything said that is not that, Father, that would quickly evaporate from our minds. But now these things we want to offer up to you are thanksgiving ourselves as we bow before you in humility, asking you to take us and make us what you want us to be. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, that's a... That's a difficult passage of Scripture, is it not? There's a lot of, that's, ooh, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. Uh, oh, those of you that have probably been wondering what we were doing, this was from Truth Seekers. We were actually taking, figuring out that Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, died the year of the flood. He was 969 years old, and he died just before the flood. But we took the Bible and we proved that, which is kind of cool. If you watch, God's timing is perfect. 
Perfect. His father, Noah's father, how does this have to do with anything? Not nothing, but it's just a matter. I'm going to erase this, but you guys want to be, what are we doing up here? But at any rate, Enoch, he, he flew away. He was basically raptured at 365 years of age. His son, Methuselah, lived to be 969 years old. And his son, Lamech, he died five years before his father did. And Noah, at 600 years of age, went into the ark in the flood, the year that Methuselah died the last of that line, if you will. So it's pretty cool how it all fits together. So at any rate, let's get on to today. Um, some of you may or may not remember, I was thinking of it today, um, what we're talking about in this section is very extreme. We could use words like radical, we could use extreme. Um, there's a program that you may or may have not have watched called Extreme Makeover, the Home Edition. <laughs> At least one of you has watched it, absolutely. And I've watched it a few times, but something that is, that, is, that is interesting about it is they don't start from what they have. They destroy or destruct what's unnecessary for what this is going to be. And usually, the family leaves. In fact, they always do. They're asked to leave because it probably would be pretty detrimental to them as they watch things being destroyed. The, the bathroom or the kitchen and all of that thing, literally sledgehammers come out. And it's, I think that's part of it even makes it even more interesting is the fact of what they do to make it ready for what's going to happen. It's extreme. Uh, I would call this passage that we're in today extreme discipleship. This is heavy stuff. I mean, Jesus is mincing no words. Um, now, we're going to be speaking metaphorically. This isn't literal in the sense of cutting your hand off, your foot, or, your, or, or pluck your eye out. But the point of the matter is it's very, very serious. There's a severity that's intended here because Jesus is serious about what needs to happen. Now, again, let's back up for just a moment. As we've gone into this private seminars of which we've been able to be listeners, we've been able to be learners involved in this, uh, the first session was about the, the three disciples, James... Uh, Peter, James, and John came off of the mountain, probably Mount Hermon, after that act of transfiguration where Jesus, they saw him for really, really he was. They, he was God, the God-man. And they saw him. And then those three, they come off, and, they, and here's nine, the nine left, which probably, now, let's be honest. If Jesus took just three of the 12 and you weren't part of the three, there'd be a little pouting going on, wouldn't there? There'd be, well, and you know what happens when we're like that is you lose focus. And I'm suspicious that those nine probably weren't as tuned in spiritually to what they needed to be to heal this deaf mute. And so we find them engaged in this argument, this debate between the religious leaders and these disciples who couldn't get this young man healed. Now, previously, they were given power to do that. And so here comes Jesus, and they come running to him. And you know what happens when people are fighting and debating? Nothing happens, correct? That's what Satan really wants in a church is to have this stuff going on because when we're doing that, there's no love, there's no fellowship, there's no union, there's no community, there's nothing. So that's exactly what's going on. So he began and he unfolded for them a lesson in faith that if you believe, really, really believe in Jesus Christ and all that he is and attack it with prayer because prayer aligns you with where his will is. You can't, don't, don't just believe something without being in prayer because you're not tuned in. You don't have the right channel. Remember those AM radios where you, you know, you, to find just that right spot, right? We do that by prayer. We get tuned into God's will by dialing in to him. Well, long story short of that was they found a lot about faith, and then Jesus really just spoke, and this man was healed. Then they were traveling. 
And we found last week that as they were traveling, they were, <laughs> imagine this, fighting amongst themselves. That's hard to believe, the disciples. Right? And what were they fighting about? In fact, he asked them, what were you discussing? Of course, we won't talk about that, right? Because they knew it was wrong. Well, what they were discussing was who was going to be the greatest. So what do you think Jesus talked about there? Humility. <laughs> and this is actually a little bit where we started today, even though we started verse 42. The previous lesson from last week actually ties into this. And we'll see it at the very end. His whole point was that you need to get along. You need to love one another. You need to be at peace with one another. And that's what really started this whole conversation on the second and third seminar, if you will. They're engaged because of what the disciples found themselves to be in real life. Their reality show. I mean, wouldn't that have been something to watch the disciples day in and day out with, with the master, the, pri the, the, the perfect, perfect savior. And yet these 12 were misfits completely, right? And I would be there too. I wouldn't have mind been the 13th just to be there and to, and to receive what Jesus was laying out there, right? I mean, it would have been fantastic. But a lot of this stuff that's going on in these three years of ministry, they didn't have a clue what was going on. Because one of the things that was active, remember the transfiguration? The very last moment of the, the really the climactic moment is when God the Father says, listen to him, to Jesus Christ. He's going to talk to you now about how he's going to die. He's going to talk to you about how he's going to leave. He's going to talk to you about really what salvation is all about. And they didn't want to hear the plan. They knew the person, but not the plan. All of this starts to make sense when? After. After he was raised from the dead. Peter gives that fantastic message at Pentecost. I mean, it's amazing. Here's this unlearned fisherman, and he blows out in just a few words, and there's literally converts everywhere. Why? Because he got it. And you know how he got it? Because of these private sessions that Jesus wanted to take these last six months, plus or minus, to tune them in to literally what he wanted them to get. And here we are. So this passage here, I'm gonna, we're going to call extreme discipleship. Uh, verse 42 of Mark, let's go back there for a moment. There are probably in the sense of, uh, we, we could say we're going to go this way, that to make extreme discipleship, there's four components. They're extreme in their own way. Uh, verse 42 says, whosoever shall offend. That word we want to work with first. When, I, when, when you're offended or someone offends you, let's use another word for that. Okay, hurt your feelings. That's, that's true. That, that certainly is a correlate. Okay, I'm going to try to do this. If I'm offended, this is, I really want to get, not thought about it to this second. So I don't know how it's going to work out. Okay, that's, I'm like that. I'm that guy I'm living on the edge. But if someone offends me, oh, I fell down. I stumbled. Okay, I didn't get hurt, by the way. I'm good. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm good. I'm good. But I, want, I wanted that because that's literally what happens when we offend someone. We make them stumble. We've tripped them. That's what I want when you see that word. A stumbling block. Someone that may make this little one. Now, oh, by the way, see, last week this is tying in perfectly because remember last week Jesus was going to make his points incredibly effective. By what did he do? He went and grabbed a little child that was able to stand, but then he put him in his lap. That was the point of illustration. That's the same person we have right now as a little child that literally is playing this further out. And he says, by the way, whosoever would offend one of these little ones. Now, here's the key. I have an underline in my book that believe in me. This isn't just talking about little children. This is talking about Christians. This is talking about those young believers. He's talking about anyone that literally trusts Christ as Savior. Those, if anyone offends or makes those stumble, it would be better. That's a pretty heavy word to have a millstone 
And if you think of, if, if you go back into grinding grain in that day and age, you would have a mule. It's actually made into this word. And they would have a foundation rock, if you will. And there was one on top that the mule would pull. I'm talking tons, tons of weight. And the grain would lay between that. And that mule, as it would, that rock would roll, the grain would be crushed, would be, you know, ground, if you will. That one, that rolling rock, is what he's making reference to, that if you offend or make one of these little ones that believe in me, it would be better that that stone would be tied around your neck and cast into the depths of the sea. In the Matthew context is what, that's, that's heavy. That's heavy. That's heavy. Now, for the, for the Israelites as well, drowning was, that would have been like for me. Drown, they're, they're, I've just about drowned two times in my life. I am so afraid of water that's over my knees. I love water that's knee-high because that's irrigating water. That's good stuff. <laughs> but I have no interest whatsoever in being in a swimming pool. I mean, this is a problem. I get it, but I'm just being honest. You know what? And to the Israelites, they had the Sea of Galilee that they fished out of. They were really not next to the ocean. Very little is talked about the ocean. For them to be cast into the depths of the ocean would be just like telling me that. It's a serious thing. But what's the point is, is to take one of these young believers... These little ones that are innocent, that are innocuous, and to, to make them stumble is amazingly severe in the consequences. So that's the first thing that he says. And then he, we, we're going to talk about in uh, the fact of, as we, as we think about this extreme discipleship, I mean, he's wanting, he's wanting them to follow him. This isn't new information either. Remember what he said even previously, that if you really love me, if you really want to follow me, you will literally turn your back on your father, your mother, your sister. If, if, I, if I'm in question, you need to follow me. Now, he's not degrading the family. He's just saying, if it's a decision between your family and me, and I'm saying this in emphasis now, there are cults today of which literally you are excommunicated if you don't follow after them. Jesus Christ is the number one most important thing ever in your life, Amen. period. And he's making this claim even further now. He's making it metaphorically as he starts to, we'll talk about this in a moment, but uh, one of the things that's absolutely necessary for you not to make a little one stumble, what is required of you? There's a lot of things, but there's one that I'm looking for. I'll just go ahead because you're, you're, you're scrap. What, what does he want? What's that? Oh, that's good. That's really good. And you know what? In other words, you're thinking more about that young person than you are about yourself. And you know what that requires? Extreme love. Extreme love. That's what parents have. That's what grandparents have. That's what parents of, of, of a child and someone that really cares. You know what? It's filled with love. And not just love. Extreme love. I can't focus that enough. This is extremities. This is extreme stuff we're talking about today. That's the kind of love that he's talking about. That's what will keep you from making a little one stumble. Someone that's new in the faith. Uh, Romans chapter 14, we have no way of getting there today. We're just we're through time constraints. But Romans chapter 14 is talking about the fact that we need to be careful about our liberty in Christ, that we don't use it as a license to use, and others that really will, will, what should I say, violate their conscience that are not ready there, that, you know, what's missing in that is love. I've had people that say, well, I do that or I don't do that because I can do it. I can do that with my liberty in Christ. Is that more important than it is for that little one, that one that's a believer? No, it's not. Your liberty is not more important than that. That's extreme love. That's what we're talking about. That's allowing us to see more vividly in the sense of not allowing one of those little ones to stumble. Love for, believer, for other believers. 
Let's go to, uh, now God is protective of those that are His. This isn't new either. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, again, just write this in your notes potentially, and you'll see that Abram is being promised from God the fact that he and his descendants will become a massive group. And you know what he says in there? Literally it says this. It says that those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you or your descendants will be cursed. That's one of the things that's been very important to America as a country going forward, how we treat Israel. That's, that's good stuff because that's biblical. God protects His own. Let's go to Psalm chapter 105 for a moment. Psalm 105, and we'll look at verse, I believe it's verse 10. Psalm 105. I think it's right. i got to get there. Psalm 105, and then I'll, I think it's verse 10. Come on, Bible. Psalm 105, and there is not, oh, I'm in verse, I went to Psalm 110. Don't do that. Stay in Psalm 105. I couldn't find 10 verses in Psalm 110. Verse 10 of chapter 105. And confirm the same unto Jacob for law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto thee, Will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance? You will find those promises that God gave to his children, he meant them. He protected them. And he protects you as being a believer in Christ. You are his. You're chosen. You are his chosen property. You're not up for sale. You're not up for trade. Now think of that. Anything that, any piece of machinery that I buy is up for grabs. We can sell it. We can trade it. We'll do anything with it, right? But God says, no, 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 no. You are my possession. You are mine. Aren't you glad? You're not in the trade category. You're not in the used people lineup. Let's go back to verse 37 for a moment. Back to nine. Mark chapter 9, verse 37. <clears throat> It's all, this, this makes it easier even, if you will. This makes the point clearer. It's tying back into what he said last week. Not he, but where we were last week. Whosoever, verse 37, Mark chapter 9, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not only me, but him that sent me. You see, when you treat a believer, that young believer particularly, how you treat that person is how you treat Christ. Because Christ lives within them. We'll talk about this in just a second. And how you treat Christ is how you treat God the Father. You cannot isolate that believer, that new believer, that old believer, whatever. You cannot isolate them from Christ. You cannot divide them. That's good stuff. That's why it's eternal life when you accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Let's go to John chapter 13 for a moment. Let's look at this concept for just a moment. John chapter 13 and verse 20. John 13 verse 20. <clears throat> Now, we're jumping in. I understand that. You can read the context later for yourself. But verse, thir verse 20 of John chapter 13 says, Verily, verily, are truly true. This is important. Listen. I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Then go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. First Corinthians 6, verse 17. And again, you could add to this as well. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. One spirit. You cannot isolate the believer from Christ or God the Father or literally the Holy Spirit. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Go to Galatians next. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians 2 and verse 20. 
I am crucified with Christ. Paul saying, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but what does it say? Christ liveth in me. Man, that's fantastic. Then go all the way to Matthew chapter 25. Back to Matthew 25. That didn't sound right. Go all the way to Matthew 25. But go to Matthew 25 and verse 34. This is uh, entering into the millennial kingdom. And I, I don't have time to read the entire thing, or we won't anyway. And literally, there's a division. There's those that are going into the kingdom and those that are literally going into judgment. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them that are on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer and say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed thee? Or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see a neighbor, a stranger and took you in? Or naked and clothed you? Or when we saw you sick or in prison? Came out, we didn't see you. The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily or truly I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. You see, you cannot isolate the believer from Christ. You cannot isolate the believer from God the Father. You cannot isolate the believer from the Holy Spirit. That's good stuff. So how do you treat that young believer? How do you treat that little one? How do you treat that one that you have power over? That you, you know what? How you treat that person is exactly how you would treat God. That will woe us up. 1st love. Let's go to 1st Peter for a moment. 1st Peter, how are your Bibles? Are you getting warm the pages? You're using them hard. 1st Peter chapter 4. Now Peter would have been one that would have gotten this, all of these things later, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Toward the end of his first letter, and he says this in verse 8. And above all things, above all things have fervent charity. What is charity? Love. Among yourselves. For charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. It's amazing the strength of extreme love. Now, I'm using, again, I use that word extreme. What, did, what, what word did he use? Fervent. Tell me about fervent. I said earnest. earnest. That's good. What else? Watch, watch, watch me just up here for a moment. Let's see that, that I fervently want to get to that lamp, but I'm too far away. Reaching. Keep going. It's not the right word yet. <laughs> stretching. Stretching. I'm stretching. I'm going as far as I could possibly even possibly imagine going. That's the kind of love that Peter's talking about. A stretching love, a fervent love. Do you see it? I see it in parents that love their kids. I see it in people that are reaching out to those little young believers that believe in them enough to reach out in love. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what we're talking about to have extreme discipleship. There's got to be a love for those around you. Now, again, what's the heart of this whole thing? How did we get here? Now, Step back. I'm going to do it again at the end because I want to make sure we know the context. Why did Jesus take him down this trail? Let's go back. You're in Mark. No, you're in Matthew. Let's go to Mark for a moment. Let's find this again. This is really the crux of the whole matter. Mark chapter 9. And he, is, he spoke to them in verse 31. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after he's killed, they shall rise a third day. They didn't know what he's saying. Now in verse 33, this is, this is still the issue. Are you there? Mark 9, 33. He came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked him, What was it 
that you disputed among yourselves by the way. What were you talking about? What were you arguing about? What were you debating about? What was important enough for you guys to kind of fight? And then they wouldn't answer. But he knew. What was it? Who's going to be the greatest? This whole lesson, these two lessons combined about humility and radical or extreme discipleship has to do with the fact you have to put yourselves behind those around you. Humility demands it, plus the fact, extreme love, you will look out for others more than you. And what happens? You will be at peace with one another. That's what he wants. In fact, make sure we understand that. I'm going to say it again at the end because I don't want you to miss that. There's a lot of stuff going on. Turn Mark, turn over your page to, to verse 50, the last verse in Mark. We read it earlier today. And look at the last sentence. Don't worry about the first part. Have salt in yourself and have peace one with another. That's what this is all about. That takes extreme love. That takes extreme love. Stretching, fervent love. Let's go to Philippians. Let's look at one more example of this. This is, this is, this is something that he wants to drive home. These are Jesus' terms. These are Jesus' words. Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. Now Paul, being in prison, talking about joy... He says in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Philippians, he says, Fulfill you my joy. I mean, make my joy fuller, that you be like-minded, having the same love, the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You see that unity that comes from extreme love? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. What's that? Lowliness of mind is humility. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on things of others. I'll tell you what, do you see how humility and extreme love fit together? Oh, and the world is affected with it. I mean, affected by it. That's how you want to have, we'll talk about this at the end. You want to be an extreme witness? You have humility and extreme love. You, you can't, you don't even need to say anything. Your life will dominate the sense of what you're all about. Because it's extreme love in the, in the sense of humility. That's what Jesus is literally saying to these guys. You're going to need extreme love to be an extreme disciple. Now, how do you lead someone into sin? Uh, the stumbling thing, where I fell, tripped and fell down. You'll never forget, like, fell down in the middle of the church because he got up too early because he was at church at a.m. rather than p.m. No, 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 no. So I tripped and fell down. What, what makes someone lead somebody into temptation or, or to trip somebody up, to lead them into sin is even maybe better. Going beyond that, what, how does that happen? What are some things that we could say? How could you fail and make some young believer, we're going to keep it that way, some youngster? Because I want you to get that sense of tenderness. That's what Jesus is doing. He's got this little child in his lap. He said, just like this little one. If you make this little one like this that believes in me to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone around your neck and be dropped into the depths of the sea. This is serious stuff. He's got their attention. So how do they do that? Excuse me? Yeah, in fact, it would all, that would be almost indirectly, and that's good, because how we would, how we would address something, we would, through doubt potentially in that, little, in that little child, that young believer, that's catchy, isn't it? A lot of the things that we would even indirectly say or indirectly do has a great deal of, of uh, power in the sense of that young believer, correct? There's also the direct uh, sense of, of temptation, whatever, where you literally are living a life that would lead them down a trail of which, and again, he used the youngster because you know what young people do? It's amazing. Isn't it little kids, those little, those little rascals? They repeat what you say. In fact, if you were wondering what you said, just listen to what you said. Right? It's amazing. And that's exactly right. Your life is repeated. 
When you don't think anyone's watching, they're watching. They're seeing. They're looking. They're feeling. They're learning. They're learn- That's exactly right. And learning good stuff or bad stuff, right? Isn't that very true? It's so true. How, how, how important it is for us to lead a life of an example. And then there's another one. Uh, where did I leave? You're in Philippians? Turn to Hebrews. Just turn over a couple of, of uh, passages. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. We're here today because of this particular consideration. Hebrews 10, we'll read it in verse 24 and 25. Let us consider one another, verse 24, Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider one another to provoke or to encourage, to stimulate unto love and to good works. Isn't that exactly what we're here for today? Isn't that exactly what we're supposed to do? It's stimulating one another unto good works and to more love. Do you see that love word just keeps showing up? And did you see what, remember what Peter said? Love covers a multitude of sins. You talk about taking charge and leading away from those stumbling events, love, extreme love, one where you reach out and care enough to do what's necessary to take that youngster to another direction. Love is that first beginning point, extreme love. Wow. But it doesn't stop there. Oh, there's there's another, we should say this too. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Now this is talking about a family relationship, but it actually could go beyond uh, Ephesians chapter 6, let's go there, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. It's talking about children obeying their parents and then fathers. There's a, there's a verse for that father in regards to children. Let's start in verse 1, chapter 6 of Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, uh, forbid the fact that a father or a mother would say, now, uh, I want you, child, to remember verse 1. You need to obey me because that's right. And we're all smiling, right? But look at verse 4. This is even more important. I, I shouldn't say, I'm not going to say it's more important, but just as important. Verse 4, and you father, and others, you guys that are waving your fingers at your children, right? You fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How do you provoke your children? Fathers. And it, well, did you see, the, why, why was the father addressed? Fathers, we're just kind of slinking a little bit. Why? Because we are the leader of the home. <laughs> That's exactly the way it's worked, isn't it? Do what I say, don't do what I do, right? He says, fathers, how do you provoke? That'll get it done too, by the way, <laughs> won't it? That'll get her done. Yeah. Son or daughter, I want you to do what I say, do not ask any questions, and do not do what I do. Boom. Now that'll provoke them to what? Did you see the word? Wrath. That's called rebellion. That's called all of those things. Now again, I'm, I'm on dangerous territory because we don't have enough time to develop this completely. But what I'm really wanting to say, though, is how do you provoke a child to move away from the direction in which God would want them to go? Lack of love and indifference, unkindness. All of those things that literally do not to- zone in to how important they are. Correct? And whose job is that? In this case, the father leads the home. This is really, really big stuff. But it's just the same. You can use that verse in the same way as Jesus said, this little one that believes in me. Don't do anything to make that child stumble. It's the same thing. Do you see how important love is in all of this? It's amazing. Let's go to the second one. I should write, take a few notes. So far, my blank board is blank. So for extreme discipleship, what's the first characteristic? 
extreme love. And Peter called it, remember that word back in, uh, you had earnest, in your, what is in the King James? It was fervent. fervent. There's a sense of that stretching. That's the kind of love. Don't you love that kind of love? I want to be loved with that kind of love. That's the love that God loved you. He stretched with Jesus Christ all the way to where he took your guilt, took your sin on him on the cross, died open-armed that you could be rejoined with God the Father. That's a stretching love. He took your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's extreme love. But let's look at another one. It's just as important. What else? What could be really important? What could keep us from causing someone from stumbling? What is it that could... I mean, love is really important. Love is... Humility is really key, and that's, that's part of this whole thing, actually. That's really good. And he spent last week, our last week's session in developing that. In fact, you know what? You can't even have extreme discipleship if you don't have humility. You can't get there because what's discipleship? Following Jesus Christ. How do you follow? When you're humble enough to do what he wants you to do. That's exactly the perfect way to build that in. Let's talk about now, another thing that's going to come up is salt. I'm going I'm to inject this word. I'm, I'm going to just put it on the side of the board. Salt. What makes salt salt? What makes good salt good salt? Flavor. Flavor, that's right. And how do you have flavor? It's got to be real. That's good. What else? What else? This is all good stuff. Boy, your mind are just whirling. What makes good salt not good salt? No flavor. Okay, you guys are. This is this is a circular argument. Well, we're winning eventually. In fact, Jesus says. In fact, let's let's. We're moving ahead. We'll come back to it. Um, let's go back to our passage in uh, Mark. We're in Ephesians. Turn back to Mark for a moment. Mark chapter nine, and let's take a look. Uh, verse fifty. We're way outside of it. We'll come back. Or maybe we'll. Who knows what we'll do? We've asked God to take us where He wants us to be. It says, "Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness." Where will you see? In other words, what salt are you going to add to the salt so the salt tastes like salt? That cleared it up for you, didn't it? <laughs> no, it didn't. But what Julia said, and others have said, you know what? It's the flavor that makes the salt what it is. Salt's good for a lot of things. Flavor, right? Preservation. We're going to be looking at further even in the Old Testament and then tie it into the New Testament. But what is it that makes salt unflavorful are unsalty. That's the word that Jesus is saying. What are you going to add to salt that doesn't taste like salt? Water. Excuse me? Water. Water? Okay. Yeah, you can do that. That's correct. In fact, what it probably does, I'm I'm working through this because I hadn't thought of that. Um, Let's leave that set for a moment. (laughs) But but that does actually work. Tell me why salt doesn't have its flavor. Old, okay. Is sodium chloride, is it stable? The answer is yes. It can sit there for a very long time, okay. So old salt can still have good flavor. Now it might be, it might be chunky, right, because it would have taken on, in this case, it would take on a little bit of water, a little bit of moisture, and it would become a block, a lump of salt, okay. I'm getting way down the trail now, okay. Yes, thank you. I was wearing out, I was wearing out. <laughs> the sense of impurities, that's what makes salt not good salt is impurities. That's why if you look on, on salt, whether it's Mediterranean salt, whether it's sea salt, whatever. Now, by the way, there are salts that fit individuals better today. You can, there's salts that your body prefers, but I'm not talking about that. In any one of those salts, guess what's important? The purity. 
the lack of other ingredients. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the world. A Christian that is pure, that is not having impurities. It's the impurities that taints the flavor. It's the impurities that take you away from all of the things that Jesus Christ wants you to be. That's why salt is a perfect example. Now, see, in that day, it was even more vivid in that day. In Israel, they had salt that was mixed with gypsum. It was worse than worthless. <laughs> I mean, it was, ah, right? You don't want any part of that. Have you ever had salt that isn't good salt? You know what? It's worthless. Let me interject something here. Jesus makes us sound like, in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the salt of the world. You know what happens? When our Christian character, when our Christian integrity is compromised, has impurities in it. You know what? It's useless. It's useless. Now, thank goodness that God does the extreme makeover on the inside. He can start over. He's continuing to work on you. He's never finished. He's always doing that. But just the point of the matter is, do you see the severity of how important it is that we remain pure? So what do you think the second one is? Now, did I lead you into that one? Extreme. <laughs> Oh, Jeff, 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 Jeff. <laughs> by the way, I can't deny it. He said extreme saltiness. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, what would that be? Purity. That's really good. In fact, you, whenever you, when anybody says extreme saltiness, you know what you're going to think of? Purity. That's good. Good stuff. Extreme purity. That's literally what our life of sanctification is about, is becoming more pure, getting rid of the stuff. In fact, one of the ways that, uh, I, I don't know the whole process, but, uh, you know, there's a, the, the Great Salt Lake. That's water and salt, isn't it? And impurities. Do you know how that's made pure salt? The heat of the sun, evaporation. All of that stuff is gone. You know, and for us, this very same thing takes place in the sense of our Christian character and integrity. We've got to get rid of the junk. You know how he does that? We talked about this several weeks ago. We talked about it at True Seekers. It was amazing how that week just lined up with where we were here in the sense of this. How do you increase faith in a believer? How does God do that? He does it through trials. He does it through trials. Because the more, when you're, when you're under a situation, when you're in trial, when you're in, tr in trouble and challenges, that Christian, that believer, is driven to the Savior. And you know what happens? Your faith increases. I can go back in my life. I'm, not, I'm going to spare you all of those details. But there's been moments at times in my life where, I mean, it was incredible. It was like your back was to the wall. It was climactic in, in the sense of belief or faith. And the tougher it was, the more I clung to, to the Savior. And you know what happened next time? That faith had expanded. Not because of me, but because God had used those circumstances to make me go to another level. And he does the same for you. That's cool. He wants purity in your life. Purity. Purity. Now, the interesting way of him to describe this metaphorically is we have three verses that describe very intimate or important parts of your body. Now, they are external parts, but nonetheless very important. He says in verse 43, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Whoa. Did, what? <laughs> cut it off? And he doesn't stop with a hand. He does also the, the foot. Feet. Yep. Feet and eyes. That's right. Those are pretty important, aren't they? 
He's talking about the flesh. The flesh, yeah. All of those things that literally are able to, guess what, offend those little ones. Now, uh, now there are actually some of the Islamic countries, actually, if you're caught stealing, they'll cut your fingers off or your hand off or whatever. And uh, so let's actually, that became almost cultic in the sense of that whole practice of cutting external parts off it would make you more godly. But upon interviewing some of those people, guess what? That didn't stop it. That didn't stop it. Because here's the, here's the real important part. He's talk, and he's talking about holiness versus hell. I mean, this, this is a vivid passage. And it's not my words, it's Jesus Christ. But literally, there are people that could cut their hand off and cut their foot off and pluck their eye out, and you know what? They would still go to hell. Why? Because Jesus Christ said it's an internal matter. In fact, let's look at that passage. Let's make sure that we see the fact that he's talking metaphorically. Let's go to uh, Mark chapter 7. Just turn back a couple of pages. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Or did I get that wrong? Oh, no, that's, where, that's a perfect place to start. Mark 14, Mark, I'm sorry, 7, verse 14. Are you all there? I confuse you. Mark 7, verse 14. When he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. And if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Whoa, that was a snippet of truth, wasn't it? In other words, that hand... That eye, that foot, where it goes, what you see, what you do, literally determined by what? The internal mechanisms. What am I, why am I using that hand that offends someone? Why am I going somewhere that it could offend someone? Why is my eye seeing things that could offend someone or myself? By the way, did you notice something else? These are things that you need to deal with before you are even considering the fact of others. This is, this is me. These are things that are offensive to God with me. But it starts on the inside. See, the, remember we talked about the extreme makeover, the home edition? That actually was the most popular uh, series. But that wasn't the initial one. I didn't even know this. The initial extreme makeover was literally about people. And they would take this person, and they would go through a series of potentially plastic surgery, exercise, weight loss, diet changes, all of these things, and they wouldn't let the family in on it. It's like snatching this person, taking them away, and they would become a what? A new person. But guess what? The emphasis was always where? On the outside. That was the same person on the inside. In fact, I was reading just, just, before, just before coming here today that one of the failures of Extreme Makeover Home Edition they listed a, 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 a potential situation where there was a mother and she had four sons. And there was something in that house that was causing a, a, a mold or something that was causing the two of the children severe challenges. Okay? So they redo the whole house. And in they come. And it's fabulous. It's fantastic. It's as good as you could make it, right? Did you ever want somebody to do your house in Extreme Makeover? No. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you know what happened? Two of those sons left the home really quickly after. Like she, you know, you know what? It didn't change mom. Mom was just as mean-spirited as she was with the old house as she was in the new house. That's what Extreme Makeover on the Outside Edition does. We're talking Extreme Makeover Inside Edition. Talking from the inside out. But Jesus wanted their attention. And when you start talking about cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, cutting, plucking your eye out, guess what? You've got attention 
And that's what he wants. He wants you to know that extreme purity is so important that it literally is the difference between heaven and hell. This is a call literally not only to discipleship, but initially to salvation. It's that important. These are Jesus' words. Extreme purity. That word is literally amputation, to remove, to remove. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. One more. We'll just march this home. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, in the sense of what Jesus said. Talk about dealing with sin. He says this in verse 27. He starts on the sense of adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yep, everybody got that. But I say unto you that whoever, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And then he goes on to say this. And if, you, and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee, or one of thy members should perish, not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut. Do you see? It's the same message. Where did it start? Right in the heart. You've got to deal with this. You have to deal with this. One more. James chapter 4. This one you should... You've got to go to James. Got to go to James. James chapter 4, verse 8. Talk about using the same pictures. James chapter 4, verse 8. Look at this. James 4, 8. Draw nigh, draw close to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Purify your hearts. Wow. Now, if you notice back in Mark chapter 9, the word hell, which comes from the word Gehenna. That's the word that's actually here, Gehenna. Can anybody tell me about that? What is, what's behind Gehenna? It's in the Old Testament. Yes, it is. Yep. In fact, it comes from a sense there was a valley of Hinnom. Of where there is, is this testing as this could possibly imagine to you. I'm going to leave these passages. Uh, I, I can maybe spout them out, but whatever. There is a, there was a, a a fire god known as Molech from the Canaanite people, and they started following after the fire god. Well, one of the things that was important to the quote fire god is that they would literally offer their young sons and daughters in this valley. And there was a king that he wiped that out. He just said, enough of that. And he just literally made it a garbage dump. And it was on fire all the time, 24-7. Literally 24-7. That is what's behind this word that Jesus uses, the Valley of Gehenna. That's a pretty vivid picture, isn't it? That's a pretty vivid picture. He's not fooling around. Gehenna. In fact, uh, Jeremiah spoke of it as a Valley of Slaughter. It was also known as the, tower, the, the Valley of Topheth. Topheth. What's a Topheth? It's a drum. It's, as bad as this sounds, literally, they would play drums at a high decibel level so they could not hear the screams of those young children. That's how horrendous this whole thing is. That's horrifying. That's the picture that Jesus uses of hell. We have extreme purity. We have extreme love. What's our third one? Nobody knows. Exactly. We know it's going to be extreme, though, don't you? You know that. Faith? Did somebody say that? That's a good one. That's a good one. And if you react in extreme faith, 
extreme love and extreme purity, guess what happens? You literally become a servant, right? What does a servant do? Serves. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. A servant actually becomes a sacrifice, literally. A sacrifice. Now, when you're using that word sacrifice, see how it's almost offensive, isn't it? It's just like too much. But it's not. In fact, if we go to Romans, let's go to Romans chapter 12 for a moment. This fits in nicely with a passage of Scripture we'll maybe have time for in Leviticus. But Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now, Paul has spent a great deal talking about the Roman road, talking about the doctrine, the right thinking. And then he goes in and he's starting to talk about application. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not a dead one, a living one. Watch the word, holy. What's holy? Purity, set apart, sanctified, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Isn't that a fantastic verse? That's literally what we're, that he's asking them to do is an extreme sacrifice. Now, how do you do that? What's that all about? Let's go back to Mark, chapter 9. And let's look at verse 49. Now, there's been three paths in the King James in verse 44, verse 46, and verse 48. All has the same, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. That's a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. You should write that down in your notes. You'll find exactly that same quote, Isaiah 66, verse 24. Now, all the manuscripts have it in verse 48. They don't have it in the other two verses. Did someone get zealous and over, make this really, really important? I don't know. One time's enough for me, but the point of the matter is, this is literally a picture of hell, the last verse that you'll find in Isaiah. There's no fooling around. This is the real deal. That's where it's quoted from. Jesus says it with meaning, with severity. But you see what it says? It says that everyone shall be salted with fire. Where do you find salt and fire together? It puts out fire. Excuse me? It, it, it can. It certainly can. Exactly. So where do we see salt and fire together? Because that's interesting, isn't it? Let's go to Ezra for a moment. Go to Ezra chapter 6. Now that's a hard book to find, right? A little book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 6 and verse 9. Those of you that are paging through, it is on page 740. Oh, wait. Maybe not. Just dialing into a verse, and it says, That which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. Now this is talking about sacrifice, and salt is there. That's interesting. We could go to Ezekiel and find the same thing. But the one I want to go to now is Leviticus chapter 2. Go back to Leviticus chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'm going to describe some of these these sacrifices to you. And you say, I really, really, do we need to? Yes, kind of, kind of do. It makes sense. Leviticus chapter 2 and especially verses, chapters 1 through 5 talk about five different sacrifices. There's four of them that have to do with atonement for sin. And all, each and every one of them require the death of an animal. There's one that is nothing to do with an animal that actually is one of consecration that salt is added to. That's what we're going to look at. And it's called the grain offering. 
It's the sense of de devotion, of dedication, of consecration. Now watch this. Knowing that, I mean, I just did a lot of summarizing, but in verse two, chapter 2 of Leviticus, there's thir verse 13, it says this. And every oblation, you there? Leviticus 2.13. Every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offerings, and with all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. What was the salt component? Literally God's protection through His covenant. The sense of permanence. The sense of purity that comes from God. That salt was an absolute necessity, particularly in the grain offerings. That's interesting. That's very interesting. And then do you know where we read in Romans chapter 12? Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Why are we to be a living sacrifice? Because literally of all the things that God has done, all of those things that He's allowed us to be part of, it allows us to be essentially an extreme sacrifice. Now there's one more left, and we're moving quickly. As you may not think so. If you have... Extreme love, extreme purity. Someone is throwing that out there in the sense of a servant. We're talking about sacrifice. To have extreme discipleship will require extreme, nobody's saying it, obedience. Obedience. That's where all the rubber meets the road. That's what it's about. Let's go back to, uh, you know, you're in Leviticus. Turn with me. We talked about it earlier today, but turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And then we're going to go back to verse 50 of Mark. But let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? That sounds familiar. That's exactly what he said in Mark chapter 9. It is thenceforth good for nothing to be cast out, to be trodden under the foot of men. Back to Mark 9. Verse 50. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith shall you season it? Have salt in yourselves. What did we say about salt remaining salty? That have its flavor. No impurities. No impurities. That, the less impurities that you have in your life, in your character, in your integrity, in your personhood, the less that you have other than God himself, the holiness, the righteousness, the purity of himself, all of that drives us to the sense of being closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to God. And guess what doesn't happen then? That little one that he's been talking about, that he's holding in his lap, he says, that's how you don't make that one stumble. When you have extreme love, extreme purity, extreme sacrifice, and extreme obedience, literally, you are extremely being made over from the inside out. And you know what happens ultimately when you put all of these packages together? There's one more culminating thought, and that is extreme witness. When that person that is exhibiting extreme love, purity, sacrifice, and obedience, that person the rest of the world can't not stay away from. They have to be close to that person because that person brings life and health and love to those around him or her. That's the message. And did you see how he tidied it up? Let's go back to verse 50. We'll read it one more time. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, in other words, it's impure, wherewith will you season it? Have that salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. 
That was the message coming back to the disciples. Listen up, folks. Listen up. Listen very carefully. I want you guys to figure out how to get along with one another because they will know you are Christians by your love one for another. What did he do at the Last Supper? We're about to enter into our, the Sacrament of Communion. What was it that he really was conquering again that night? They were wrestling with themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to get to sit on one side of him and on the other? They missed the plan. What was the plan? We're going to work on the inside first. Oh, there's a kingdom coming. Jesus is coming back. The second coming is happening. There's no question about that. And that second coming, he's coming with a, king, with, a, with a crown. He's coming as a ruler, as a reigner, as a king forever and ever, forever and ever. But you know what? If you don't have our hearts right, we've missed it out. That's what he's really doing in this passage of Scripture. Talking with severity, he says, you either have holiness or you have hell. And if I'm the difference. I'm the one you must accept. I'm the one that you have to see as the plan. That night, that communion, we call it communion, the night, their last time together as a group, because just within hours, he would be betrayed. He would be subjected to six different trials, all illegal, all coming with the same, all giving him over to the next level. Ultimately, Pilate gave him over then to the crucifixion team. They put him on a cross. But those last moments they had together, Jesus, one of the most intimate moments, was when he stripped down and began to wash her feet. You know what that looks like? That looks just like this. Extreme love. Extreme purity. He sacrificed himself. But you talk about extreme sacrifice, you won't find one any greater than Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Obedient even to the death of the cross, it says in the scriptures. If you want an example to follow, you don't have to look around ourselves, and there are some fantastic people that are tuned into this, that the world is being changed because of their activity and being more and more and more like Jesus Christ. You look to Jesus as your focus. Jesus Christ is the one that will change you from the inside out. And when you're being changed from the inside the hands and the feet and the eyes, you don't have to worry about them. They're taking care of themselves. They're going, they're seeing, they're doing what God wants you to do. That's quite a message that Jesus gave, wasn't it? As vivid as it was, did you know what? They didn't get it. Boom, right over their head. Now, the cool part is, it's just like us. There'll even be met, there's even things that you learned yesterday. There's things you saw yesterday. There's things that you took in yesterday that literally may not have even made any sense. But a year, a two year, four years down the road, guess what? Those moments, that's just what happened to the disciples, it all comes back and it makes them fuller. The flavor is coming and it becomes more robust and they're able to see how they fit into this. Peter, at this time, how, how, how impressive would have he been on these four at this time when he took got this message? Pretty much zero. Extreme love, there, well, even beyond that. Uh, rate Peter on a scale of one to 10 for humility. Zero. <laughs> it was really low, wasn't it? Exactly. See, that's the key. Do you see why Jesus is taking these private moments of which we're able to, to, to be right involved in that? We're right there with them. Isn't that fantastic? The crowds weren't, but they were. And all of those intimate moments where Jesus felt it important enough, you got to get this, guys. I'm here for you. I'm telling you this stuff. It became very vivid. As you said, Alice, right now, missed it. Pfft, missed it. Later, we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse... In fact, let's close with that one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. It just came to me. This is... What a, what a great place to stop. Written by that guy that really didn't get it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. This is exactly what we're talking about. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, had some trials will make you perfect, that is mature, establish, that's foundation, founded, 
strengthened and settled you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Is that not what we've just talked about? Spot on. Peter's that guy. As you said, Alice, depends on when. It depends on when. When he received this lesson, I think he got a D minus. There, that's an A plus. You know, it's the same for us. God's not finished with you. He's leading one step at a time. Tomorrow is a day that he will use moments, trials, testings, things that will make you closer to him that looks just a little bit more like his son Jesus. He's looking for extreme love, extreme purity, extreme sacrifice, and extreme sacrifice. I'm sorry, uh, obedience. Is there, is there a step where Jesus said, Matthew 5, it says, salt loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. How do we go from there to start? Back to Jesus. I mean, the, the connection with that, we find ourselves worth nothing. And, 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 you know, and, that's, and literally, he wants people, the, the sooner that people understand without him, Jesus Christ, without him, you are worth nothing. In fact, this is, this, there was an army chaplain that said he didn't believe in hell. And a good share of those, of those people in the army said, well, we have no need for you then. Think about it. What difference does death make if there's no hell? What, what's the point of hell? The opposite is holiness. The saltiness, for instance. Where do you go when you have no flavor? When you are worthless? Back to Jesus. It starts from the inside. Even on, on a Christian character where you've lost, there's been some some disruptive event that literally, oh, I can't believe I did that. I cannot believe that. You know what? A lot of times the, the, the compen, or the, uh, what do I want to say? The, the uh, oh, what's the word? The consequences of that is time, right? That's not quick. Sometimes that doesn't turn around very quickly. But in the meantime, to regain that, which sometimes you can't regain it to that level, that's, that's the serious, that's the severity of this. But literally, it starts again. Where does it start? Just like it always did. It's an inside deal. The reason that that was a failure there is because the heart was the problem. We have to go back to focus on where the problem was. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that. And again, the nearer we draw to him, the nearer he comes to us. But now Satan would want you. That's what he does all of the time. He's the accuser. The accuser of brethren, you've heard that? And you say, I thought you were going to quit. I'm just about to quit. The accuser of brethren, you know what he accuses you of? Because you're... You've sinned. You've done something wrong. You're worthless. You're absolutely a trash. God wants nothing to do with it. That is a lie from hell. Jesus Christ died for you. Now, you failed. Yes, you stumbled. You fell down yourself. And probably this is what Jesus is saying. If you stumbled, there's probably someone else that stumbled because of watching you. That's serious stuff, isn't it? Well, how do we get back? We go right back to Jesus. He's right there to pick you up. He's there to pick you up. Satan's accusing you. Jesus is the the defense attorney. Go to 1 John. He's literally an advocate. Did you know he had an attorney on that side? He's got a retainer because he lives within you. Lives within you. Let's pray. I think the unsaltiness you're talking about, I would liken to hitting rock bottom and then reaching to be lifted up. Yeah, and God is that person reaching down to you. Yeah. And, that, and, and Jesus is doing this verbally with a, with a, with a metaphoric seriousness. That it, these, sometimes it's easier to skip this stuff, isn't it? It's pretty severe. But he, the sooner that you understand that, the sooner you literally reach out to the Savior. 
And that's really the message that is. That we really need him every moment of every day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the, time, for the time we've had. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your concern and your service in sending Jesus, which you determined beforehand that, that would, nothing could be more important than to regain what was lost through sin. Father, today we've seen the severity of sin and all of the challenges that it brings. Father, help us. We need your strength. We're, we're unable to go forward without you. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you for leading us at times when we feel down, when we feel discouraged, when there's nothing left, when we're to the back, our backs are to the wall. Father, may we see you. Our circumstances become less important when we're focused on you. The world system wants us to dial in to what's going around us rather than what's above us. Father, thank you for preparing heaven and determining those that are in Christ will go there. That was your plan. Father, I just pray for each one of these today here that you'd give them the strength they need for the steps of the journey before them. You have us here for a reason. We're not early, we're not late. We're here because you've designed it that way. May our lives be helpful. May it be filled with a sense of discipleship that is able to lead those that need us. Help us with love, obedience, purity, and sacrifice. We know, Father, that you're worthy to be praised and honored and lifted up. Help us. In Christ's name, amen.